You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. The full text on which our teaching is based today is Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words. The Apostle Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Last weekend was the 50th anniversary of the death of J.R.R. Tolkien. If you're a true Tolkien fan, you probably knew that. John Ronald Rule Tolkien died on September the 2nd, 1973. So last Saturday, we had a Tolkien-themed day in our house. So we read one of Tolkien's stories, and we drank something called Wizard Tears. Still don't know what it was exactly, but it tasted pretty good. And we watched... The Tolkien movie. This is a movie that came out a few years ago. Uh, it was Aiden and Cullen's first time seeing it. And I wasn't sure if they would like it because it's, it's a bit of a slow burn. It's a biopic following Tolkien's early life. And, you know, Aiden and Cullen are typical boys. If a movie doesn't have a certain amount of explosions or decapitations in it, they tend to lose interest pretty quickly. So I wasn't sure if they would like it, but they really did. And as we watched the movie, I was reminded of Tolkien's love of trees. We don't see the trees these days, not the way that Tolkien did. His love for trees started when he was very young, when he was a boy, when his mother taught him botany. And so he would draw trees and he would climb trees and play in the trees and even talk to the trees. And those trees later populated his stories. In one of Tolkien's letters, he says, I am obviously much in love with plants and above all, trees, always have been. And I find human maltreatment of them as hard to bear as some find ill treatment of animals. You see, for Tolkien, trees are patient and they're gallant. Not quickly erected, not easily tamed or destroyed. Trees are signs of depth and strength, life. They're signs of life. The Apostle Paul will have something very similar to teach us in this passage we're studying today when at the end of the passage he calls us to be rooted so that we can be built up. 
rooted so that we can be built up. For several weeks now, we've been in this study called Preeminent. We've been looking at the letters of Colossians and Philemon, studying them verse by verse, and we find ourselves now in Colossians chapter 2. If you're new to Faith Church today, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Just a bit about Colossians to bring you up to speed. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, written to a specific group of Christians who lived in a city called Colossae, first century group of Christians. And Paul wrote this letter from prison. It's one of his captivity epistles. He wrote to this particular group of Christians because it was brought to his attention that a band of false teachers had gained a hearing in the city of Colossae. Paul is concerned about this, and so he writes to address that specific problem. The passage we're going to study today is the first time Paul will expressly warn about those false teachers. We've been calling them the philosophers, and we'll learn much more about them in chapter 2. But this is the first time that he'll warn, explicitly warn, about those false teachers. This passage can be broken down into three parts, three main points for the morning. I'm going to give them to you so you'll know what to listen for as we work through this passage together. Paul will teach the church here about a good type of fighting. Yes, there is such a thing. A good type of fighting, a bad type of teaching, and then finally, Christ-centered living. So a good type of fighting, a bad type of teaching, and Christ-centered living. First, a good type of fighting. Let's look again at verse 1. He writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul is talking specifically here about the Colossian Christians. He mentions the city of Laodicea now for the first time. Laodicea was another ancient city. It was located about 12 miles away from Colossae. That's about how far we are from Tropicana Field, right here where you sit this morning. So that'll give you an idea of the distance. He is saying... I am willing to struggle for your sake, speaking to these early Christians. I am even willing to endure a great struggle for your sake. Bear in mind, he had not met these people. He had not seen them face to face. Someone else planted the church in Colossae. Someone else planted the church in Laodicea. And yet Paul is still willing to minister to them and to struggle for them. There are a number of metaphors for the Christian life. And for Christian ministry, it's a long journey. It's a process of growth. And according to Paul here, it's a great struggle. Ministry is a great struggle. I want to introduce you to a major theme in Paul's writings, the agon motif. The word agon is the Greek word that Paul uses here. It's translated as struggle. Now, you can hear in that word, our English word, agony, right? Paul again and again talks about this agon, and it's actually a word that comes right from Tropicana Field. It comes right out of the competition floor. It's an athletic term. And agon is a competition. It's a contest. It's a fight like that of a gladiator in the arena. Paul talks about Christian ministry as a fight. We've been learning a lot in the past few weeks about suffering and Paul can talk about rejoicing in his suffering. Don't conclude from that that Paul's ministry was an effortless one. No, 
In fact, in the same breath, he can talk about the privilege of suffering, the privilege of doing ministry and suffering in the process, and the pain of the struggle in the same breath. I want us to look again at Philippians 1.29, a verse we've looked at numerous times in recent weeks, but today I want to group it with verse 30. Look again at Philippians 1.29 and now verse 30. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you, church, there's that language of privilege again, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict, agon, same word from our passage in Colossians 2, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, really brings out the grace and the grit of this passage. Here's the NRSV. For he has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle, agon, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Oh yes, the Christian life and Christian ministry is a struggle. Indeed, it is a fight. But it is a good fight. It is a good fight. Toward the end of his life, when Paul is writing to his younger colleague, Timothy, he's sure to stress the goodness of the fight. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he uses the same word, agon, as for you, O man of God, Timothy, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good agon. Fight the good fight of the faith. And then at the very end of Paul's life, when he's on death's door, the last letter we have from him, 2 Timothy, he speaks of his own ministry this way. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good agon. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Yes, it's a fight. Christian ministry is a fight, but it's a good fight. Now, why does Paul speak of it as a good fight? Why would he be so willing to struggle why would he push himself so hard in ministry? Several years ago, I attended a CrossFit seminar in Cookville, Tennessee, a little bitty town, sort of the unofficial headquarters of CrossFit because it's the home of Rich Froning. Now, if you don't know who Rich Froning is, he's probably, arguably, the fittest man who's ever lived. Ten-time CrossFit Games champion. More gold medals than anyone in the history of the sport. This is his hometown. So I'm there attending a CrossFit seminar at his CrossFit gym box, they call it, called CrossFit Mayhem. And when you go to a CrossFit seminar, you learn a lot, you learn how to coach, but you do a lot of workouts. So we're all gathered in the middle of this gym floor. It's a giant structure, massive two-story building. We come to the center of the floor. We're getting ready for the group workout. And I look up, and on the balcony that overlooks the main gym floor, there stands Rich Froning, the greatest of all time. He was going to watch us do the workout. Now that changed everything. 
I mean, I was ready to get a pretty good workout in. But looking out and seeing Rich Froning himself watching over us, looking down on us, now there was only one option. I was going to work so hard that I was either going to pass out or puke in the trash can. It's the only options, and you're welcome for that mental image. (laughs) Because the goat was looking down, and he was watching us. Now listen to me. The reason Paul would push so hard, the reason you and I should in the ministries we're called to is because God himself is looking down on us. And not just that, he's the one who drafted you. He's the one who recruited you, trained you, empowers you. Do you remember how Paul ended Colossians chapter one? I struggle with all the energy he provides. God has given you the strength you need here and now for this good fight, so fight it. Fight it. Continue in that ministry he's called you to. Now back to Colossians. If the theme of verse one is this great struggle, this great fight, the theme of verses two and three is the great result that comes from this fight. Paul knows about this great result. Look what he says. Why does he struggle? Why does he fight? That their hearts, or so that their hearts, the hearts of the Colossians and other Christians, might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul understands that God has chosen to use him in the same way that God has chosen to use us and our ministries. This is why we push. This is why we don't quit, because hearts are transformed. Notice the language Paul uses. The hearts of the Colossians are encouraged. In the Bible, the heart is the control center of the life. We think with the heart, we feel with the heart, we act from the heart. It's the control center of everything. Paul's ministry pierces, touches the very center of the Colossian Christians. That's the power of a faithful ministry. They're encouraged individually and corporately. They're knitted together in love. The entire congregation is strengthened because of his ministry. Paul knows the result of fighting the good fight. So here's what this means for you. You keep fighting. You keep doing ministry wherever it is that God has sovereignly stationed you. Paul's ministry made a difference. Your ministry makes a difference. Keep fighting that good fight as a mom, as a dad, as an elder or deacon here at Faith Church, as a connection group leader, volunteer in the nursery, volunteer in the student ministry, keep fighting the good fight as a teacher, as a police officer. Those are ministries. It's hard work. It's not easy to serve Jesus there, but keep fighting that fight. Even when it doesn't seem like you're having an impact. Recently, Jamie, my wife, was going through a tough season where she was feeling overworked, underappreciated, not really accomplishing much in her areas of ministry. We all have seasons like that, right? 
We all have seasons where we feel like that. And she was in one of those seasons. So I did what I typically do in times like that. I shared with her a quote from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) That's how our family works. It's Aragorn who says, deeds will not be less valiant because they are unpraised. Some of you need to hear that today. Deeds will not be less valiant because they are unpraised. When you are an unsung hero, when it seems like your ministry is not having an impact, when it seems like no one is appreciative of your work, remember that you are a hero still. Now let's be clear, you're not the hero of heroes. That title belongs to Jesus alone. But because you're in his story, because you're participating in his plan for the world, you are indeed a hero. So you fight like one. You struggle with the energy that he provides. There is a good type of fighting. That's the first thing Paul teaches us here. Secondly, he teaches us about a bad type of teaching. A bad type of teaching. Let's keep reading in verses four and five. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this point because Paul will come back to this idea of bad teaching in the rest of chapter two. So we'll have much more to say about this later. But like I said before, this is the first time he explicitly warns us and warns the church about the danger of bad teaching. He says, do not be deluded, do not be deceived by plausible arguments. He doesn't name the people here. We don't know who they were, but they are spreading these plausible arguments. Now, this is a difficult term. It's just one term in the Greek text, and it's an interesting term. It's difficult because it's only used here in the New Testament. It's the only time this term is used. It means something like persuasive speech or fancy talk. Fancy talk. In a few verses, Paul will call the teaching of these false teachers empty deceit. So this teaching had the sound of sophistication to it. It sounded like fancy talk. Maybe lots of big words. Don't really know. It sounded fancy, but upon further investigation, it was empty. Empty of what? Empty of power. Empty of power because it was empty of truth. It was bad teaching, false teaching. We spend most of our time in the church setting talking about what we ought to believe, right? And that's good. But there does come a time where we need to talk about what we should not believe. We need to talk about belief in a negative sense. You've heard me say before that belief and disbelief travel together like two sides of the same suitcase. We take up this suitcase with us and off we go throughout life. On the one side of the suitcase are all the things we believe. On the other side are the things that necessarily we do not believe. If I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life, the one way to eternal life with our Creator, then necessarily I must believe that there are no other paths to God. 
There are no other equivalent spiritual options. To believe certain things about God, God's plan for the world, our place in it, means that necessarily we must not believe certain other claims. The technical terms for what I'm getting at here are orthodoxy and heresy. Orthodoxy is doctrinal correctness, good teaching, right belief. Heresy is doctrinal error, bad teaching, wrong belief. One of the first people in the history of the church to use this term heresy was a second century writer named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp. Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John. So Irenaeus is a link all the way back to the Apostles. In the second century, Irenaeus took a stand against the heresies of his day. He wrote a massive five-volume work called Against Heresies. No sense in being coy, right? Just come right out and tell us what the book is about. It's decisive. I like it. Against Heresies. And in this work, he helps us understand the ugliness, the cruelty of heresy. And he does so by using the image of a mosaic. Now, before I describe the mosaic, I want to say that we lose some of the forcefulness of the image today because of our setting. He's going to talk about a dog. Now, when we think of dogs today, what do we think of? Cute and cuddly little pets, right? We feed them and we name them and we celebrate their birthdays and all of that. But you have to remember, in Irenaeus' day, that's not how they thought of dogs. Dogs were wild animals. They were disgusting. They roamed the streets, feasting on anything they could find, including corpses. Okay, so just keep that image in mind. Now, here's the mosaic. Irenaeus says, the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, the teaching contained in the Bible, is like a beautiful mosaic of a king, of a king, and it's been assembled by the most skillful artist ever. What the heretics do, what the false teachers do, is they take this mosaic and they rearrange all the parts. They take some out and they add in some others. And now, no longer do we have a picture of a king, but we have a picture of a dog. And then the heretics hand us that mosaic and they say, here is your king. Here is your king. You see the ugliness of it? It's like they've taken the Mona Lisa and cut it up into pieces and then reassembled it and now it's a picture of a dumpster or an outhouse. False teaching, heresy, is always ugly. It's always cruel because it robs us of truth and the hope that comes from the truth. We'll come back to this idea of false teaching, of bad teaching in the weeks ahead. For now, we're going to move on. There is a good type of fighting. There is a bad type of teaching. We can't be deluded by it. And then finally in this passage, Paul talks about Christ-centered living. The climax of the passage and the center of the letter, the center of the letter is here in verses 6 and 7. If you've got one of those ESV scripture journals, I encourage you to highlight these verses, circle them, put a box around them. This is the center of the letter right here. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, 
abounding in thanksgiving. You've received Jesus, so walk in him. Rooted down deep, built up. Remember Tolkien's trees? Patience, gallant, that's what we think of when we think of trees. They're patient, they're gallant, they're strong. Why? Because their roots go deep. How is it that such a small thing can grow into such a massive thing? It's really all about placement. That's all it is. You place a tree in the right location and you leave it there. And what happens? In time, it grows, thrives, becomes this massive thing. That's the same image that Paul gives us here, rooted in Jesus, placed here in Jesus, and built up in him. It's all about placement. It's all about focusing on Jesus. Paul is teaching us here about living a Christ-centered life, keeping Christ the focus of everything we do. Now, a Christ-centered life, of course, means Christ-centered days. How is it that we fill our days with Christ? How is it that we can remain rooted in Christ? couple of ideas here in closing. First, memorize the gospel. Christ-centered days means gospel-centered days. It means we never move away from the cross. If you've heard me say this once, you've heard me say it a thousand times, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. The gospel is not like training wheels on a bike. It's not something you need for a little while, but eventually outgrow. We never, never, never outgrow our need for the gospel. So memorize it. Pick a passage of scripture, a concise passage that summarizes the message of the gospel and memorize it. God wants us to tuck his word away in our hearts so that it's there whenever we might have need of it. So that when you're having one of those difficult days, you can grab your own attention And you can say, listen up, you. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are a new creation. So don't you live this day any other way. Memorize the gospel. Secondly, pray the gospel. Pray it. We see Paul himself doing this often. He remembers what his life was like before Jesus. Not so that he can feel guilty about himself, but so that he can express his gratitude to God in prayer. He remembers. He even says in 1 Timothy, I was an opponent of God. I was a persecutor of Christianity, but I received mercy. I received mercy. Pray the gospel. Thirdly, celebrate the gospel. And here I'm thinking specifically about what we're doing on Sunday mornings when we gather for worship. Sing it. Sing out and celebrate all that God has done for you. Jose does a great job of helping select Christ-centered music for us here on Sunday mornings. And he does a great job of giving us time to learn and appreciate the lyrics. Have you noticed that about once a month for the past several months, we've been singing that song, We Crown You? Have you noticed that? Are you not... Noticing that you're growing in your appreciation for those words? Here they are. To the one who endured all the shame of the cross, to the lamb who was slain as atonement for us, 
to the Son who overcame the power of death. We praise. Sing it. Don't worry about what the people around you think. Man, I can't sing worth a crap. If you sit anywhere over here in this whole section, you know that. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't already know. Sing it. Celebrate the gospel. One final thing. Study. Study the gospel like we're doing now, like we do in our connection groups, our formation classes, faith core, confirmation, resilient discipleship. We never move on from the gospel only into a more profound understanding of it. It's all about the placement of the tree. It's all about being rooted in Jesus. Look, I know this sounds so simple, right? Just hang out with Jesus a lot. It sounds so simple. And yet, sometimes simple things bring about remarkable results. One of my favorite examples, and we'll close with this. I like to read biographies, and if you appreciate a good biography, you'll no doubt know the name David McCullough. In his biography of the Wright brothers, McCullough does a masterful job telling the story of Wilbur and Orville, two Dayton, Ohio boys, who with no college education, no formal technical training, and very little money, set out on a mission to fly. In August of 1900, the brothers built a glider large enough to carry a man. The wingspan was 18 feet. The cost, the total cost of the glider, $15. (laughs) On December the 17th of 1903, for the first time, Orville flew the Wright brothers' flying machine. Were you scared? Orville was asked one time. Scared, he said with a smile. Uh, There wasn't time for that. The total distance flown had been only 120 feet. The first flight lasted 12 seconds. But on August the 8th, 1908, Wilbur showed the world what the Wright brothers' flying machine could do. It was the first public demonstration of their machine, and within 24 hours, it was headline news everywhere, everywhere. As one source put it, it was not merely a success, but a triumph, a decisive victory for aviation. Now, here's the most fascinating piece of the story, I think. Long before the Wright brothers conquered the air, long before their flying machine was built, Wilbur would sit for hours and hours and hours studying the birds noticing their every movement, filling his journal with notes. This great victory for aviation started with something so incredibly simple. Wilbur Wright placed, planted, we might say, just looking at one thing, nothing but the birds. Nothing but the birds. Friends, every great thing God wants to do in your life, every great thing he wants to do in our church and our community, it will all begin with this, us looking to Jesus, rooted and built up in him. Let's pray. 
Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning for the opportunity to study it together. My prayer today for my own life, my own family, for our church family here, is that we would indeed be rooted in Jesus. So many things distract us at times. Sometimes we want something, I don't know, maybe more complicated, some kind of magic bullet, something new. We don't need any of that. We need Jesus. So God, even now, work the the gospel deep down into our hearts, I pray. Help us to memorize it, sing it, celebrate it, share it with others, continue to study it. Oh, Lord Jesus, it really is all about you. Always has been. Always will be. You and you alone are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.